A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Christian Americans. In February 1939, a Nazi rally took place in Madison Square Gardens in New York City. To describe that event as fascist is not hyperbole, as is sometimes the case when that word's used. The event was organised by the German-American Bund, an association dominated by recent German immigrants who supported Hitler, The rally opened with the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, accompanied by the Nazi salute. There were stormtroopers standing in the aisles in Nazi uniform. And there were on the stage, there was a giant flag of George Washington hanging directly next to a giant swastika. And there were American flags juxtaposed with swastikas. Speakers castigated President Roosevelt for being in the pocket of Jewish elites. The largest ever police presence in New York City to that date prevented violence between the attendees at the rally and the counter-protesters outside. Although the police could not prevent a Jewish protester from being beaten up on the stage by the stormtroopers. The core claim made by fascists in interwar America was that fascism was as American as motherhood, apple pie and George Washington himself. The spirit which opened the West and built our country is the spirit of the militant white man, preached Gerhard Wilhelm Kunz, the National Public Relations Director of the Bund. He cited Jim Crow laws, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and immigrant quotas imposed in the 1920s. American lawmakers generations ago promulgated laws forbidding intermarriage between white and black, yellow, brown and red inhabitants. We have Jim Crow laws and a complicated system of immigration quotas. It has then always been very much American to protect the Aryan character of this nation. The Great Depression triggered a wave of anxiety about the failure of liberal capitalism. And in the US, as in other liberal democracies, there were many who saw in fascism a dynamic, modern, optimistic set of solutions. In the 1930s, US politics was wrenched off its familiar rails as the New Deal spread government seemingly into all areas of American life. Communists and other left populists attacked President Roosevelt for his timidity and others on the ultra-right, infatuated with foreign dictators, sought to purify America from within. So what explains the popularity of fascism in 1930s America? And as the United States again confronts a multi-layered crisis of legitimacy, is fascism a threat once again? I think we're more in 1932 than 1936 or 1938. By that I mean we're on the cusp of what could become a fascist experiment in the United States. I'm Will Hitchcock. I teach history at the University of Virginia, and I'm writing on the American responses to the rise of fascism in Europe in the 1920s and 30s. I'm Sarah Churchwell. I'm a professor of American literature and culture at the University of London, and um, I've written two books on America in the interwar years and the cultural histories of fascism uh, in the 20s and 30s in the United States. Well, let's just 
remind ourselves about the political context of the late 1920s, early 1930s. This was a pretty unstable, fretful period in, in American political history, wasn't it? You could say that again. I mean, uh, I think it's so important to remind our listeners of the stakes of that period. Um, the, the Depression affected the entire global economy. But as a lived experience, what I think Americans and Europeans were going through is the, the loss of, of any familiar guardrails. I think what's so striking and what's so scary to try to recover from that period is the sense that democracy could easily vanish and was vanishing before their very eyes. And, you know, popular democracy with a full franchise for citizens, this was a new experiment in the 1920s and 30s. It was very little track record of a successful, uh, wide open sort of, you know, rough and tumble politics in which everyone had the vote and different parties could uh, change power peacefully. That model was still brand new and it was not working at all well. So I think, you know, we have to, you know, imagine ourselves in that period in which the, the economy is shattered, red lines are stretching out all over the industrialized world, democracy is back on its heels, and everyone is looking for a solution of some kind, someone who can come forward with an alternative to this disaster that parliamentary democracy seems to have generated. You know, it, it turns on our head, our whole idea of, of what's permanent and what's uh, fragile. Sarah, so much of your writing is about the idea of America in some way or other. And so you could have building on what Will's just said there. Can you kind of take us to the existential crisis of what America was supposed to be? And as Will said, obviously, this was a global crisis in, in the interwar period. But how did it have a particular American dimension? Well, the idea of a of full suffrage and a, and a full multiracial democracy, which now we are accustomed to thinking of as, as or at least many of us, um, are accustomed to thinking of as at the core of the American ideal and the core of the American dream, wasn't even the dream for many Americans. There were many Americans who simply didn't believe in full suffrage and they did not believe in multiracial democracy. And they were outraged that it was being foisted upon them. We should remember here that women only got the vote in 1920. And when women got the vote at the beginning of the decade that you're talking about at the beginning of all of this turmoil, part of that is brought about by women getting the vote. That included African-American women getting the vote. And that seemed to, to um, those who were opposed to this idea of full multiracial democracy to be retroactively threatening their ability to suppress African-American men from voting as well. So this idea that we have that America used to be this kind of happy multiracial democracy where it all worked well is a fantasy. It simply doesn't hold up under any historical scrutiny as soon as you start to look at it. So when we try to talk about the idea of America at that time, we really do have to, I'm afraid, start to dig into more granular groups about what which group are we talking about and what was their idea of America and what what was it that people thought was under threat and different groups thought different things were under threat. The Ku Klux Klan had been in the ascendancy throughout the 20s, and that was a group with a, obviously a very specific idea of what they thought America and the American dream was supposed to mean. It was supposed to be Protestant. It was a deeply evangelical, anti-Catholic, anti-Black, and of course, anti-Semitic. That was their idea of America. And it was very much intention already at the time with this other vision of America 
a, a more liberal democratic version of that. And that tension was starting to collide, uh, you know, already at that point in the ways that Will was was suggesting. Yeah. And, and Sarah, when you're talking about the Ku Klux Klan there, this is what's sometimes referred to as the second Klan. So the Klan emerged after the after the Civil War in the South. But in the 1920s, it had this great national resurgence. And it wasn't by any means solely a Southern institution, was it, in these years? It was centered in the Midwest. There were these famous scenes. People can look them up on Google of the Ku Klux Klan marching in, in full pillow um, regalia through the streets of Washington and, and being met at the White House by President Harding. I mean, would it be an exaggeration to say that the Klan had become respectable, that they'd become mainstream, that what they represented was something that it was possible to talk about in polite society, that their vision of America was something that didn't need to be cloaked in secrecy? This was what respectable people could say. Increasingly, that was the case through the middle 1920s. So as the Klan was gaining power in the early years of the 1920s, that started to be the case. And in Indiana, you mentioned the Midwest, Indiana actually had the highest density of Klan membership during the 1920s. And famously, Klansmen there yeah, would go around without their robes and they would just announce that they were members of the Klan. In Atlanta, similarly, it was an open secret who was members of the Klan. Atlanta was the, the headquarters of the, Klan, of the second Klan, as you rightly say, which is a really important thing to bear in mind. Increasingly, it looked as if it was going to become respectable. And that was something that was of great concern to those who were fighting for a more progressive, pluralist, tolerant view of of what uh, this American dream might look like. But but um, then by the late 1920s, the Klan was in decline. They had a couple of major scandals, sex scandals and corruption, financial corruption scandals, which funnily enough, the reactionary you know, right wing seems to keep tripping themselves up with sex scandals and, and financial yes. corruption, right? Plus yes, who'd have thought? Um, and so, but what happened then was that what we need to bear in mind is that then it, it can be easy to, to talk about the Klan in decline as if then they just quietly went away. And that is not... Not what happened. What happened in the very early years of the 1930s was that the majority of people who had been uh, uh, leaders of Klan movements rebranded themselves as self-styled American fascists because they saw the affinity between the new movements in European fascism and their own beliefs and ideologies and platforms. And so what happens is they just kind of rebrand and a lot of them pop up again declaring themselves now they are the Atlanta black shirts, the Atlanta order mm. of fascists. They were often the same individuals and they were often the same leaders. We need to get into this question of how we use this word fascism, which I want to do through this conversation. But Will, I want to just be before we kind of get into that directly, I want to bring in Franklin Roosevelt here, because we're talking about the 1920s, this period of, of the Klan rises and then it falls, instability around the world. What happens in the United States in 1932, of course, people know, is that this landslide victory for Franklin Roosevelt, a Democrat. How do you, in sort of thinking about this period, how do you account for Franklin Roosevelt's appeal and his success? And how does what he's offering uh, as solutions, the New Deal as a solution to the crisis of American capitalism and the twin crises of American capitalism and democracy. How does Franklin Roosevelt fit into this picture? Franklin Roosevelt is such a fascinating character because like all successful politicians in America, he creates a pastiche. He, he invites multiple parties, multiple factions, multiple threads into a coalition that he, that he builds and he carries himself to enormous victories in in all the elections that he he ran in as uh, governor and then as president. 
And that is something really worth picking apart. So what is the Democratic Party in 1932? It's filled with Klansmen because the Klan, to the extent that the Klan, as Sarah rightly says, carried on in a different guise after its collapse in the late 20s, it still found a very comfortable home in the in the Democratic Party, whose base was, of course, in the Jim Crow South. Now, Franklin Roosevelt, by 1932, had transformed himself in one of his many guises uh, into a Southern Democrat by spending a huge amount of time in Georgia, working uh, the Georgia politicians, getting to know the base of the Democratic Party. Because he was an elite New Yorker, really, but he had this home yeah, in, in Of course in he was. He was yeah. this, uh, you know, he would just stay up on the Hudson and Hyde Park. But he he went to Georgia to to recover his polio and to to build a muscle in the in the in the therapy of of warm springs but he never sat around idly just uh massaging his legs he was working the phones and he he understood that he needed the democratic south to build a political base from and so he embraced without doing it quite so publicly but he did it very deliberately uh, behind closed doors he embraced jim crow segregation uh, that was crucial to allowing him to pull the South along with him as he was also building a coalition of Northerners that drew from um, uh, the sort of multi-ethnic communities of the North. So how did he fuse together this national coalition? In one sense, he did it by accepting the white supremacy of the South, which had always been a, a part of the Klan's ideology. So the Democratic Party could never shake itself free from the Klan, even though it was also trying to appeal to Catholics in the North. And of course, the Klan was famously anti-Catholic. So this is what makes Roosevelt so fascinating, is mm -hmm. that he did something so few politicians can do in America, which is he pulled together what would appear to be a contradictory political coalition, and he made it work, and he made it work again and again. It would begin to fall apart because Southern Democrats were discovering that the New Deal actually was fairly progressive, and it was going to lead to a rising tide economically that might empower Black Americans, and they started to peel off from it in the late 30s. But to your point about what were Americans looking for, they were hopeful that there could be a solution through the democratic process. And I will say this about Franklin Roosevelt. He was very consistent in saying that our response to the global crisis must be to make America more democratic, not less democratic. Mm. The solution does not lie in the mind of one all-powerful individual. It lies in widening our democracy, making it function better. But it is true that his opponents at the time projected onto him some of the same kind of criticisms that were projected onto authoritarian leaders in European countries. And while you've just emphasized there, Will, the way in which the New Deal in FDR's mind and in to most respects in reality empowered local communities in multiple ways, the other way of looking at, at it was that it was a massive centralization of power, a huge expansion of the federal government into areas of American life uh, which had never had contact with the federal government before, direct employment of hundreds of thousands, of millions of, of, of people being paid directly by the government in ways that hadn't been before, which were profoundly unsettling to some, uh, to many uh, old school uh, liberals and people within the uh, the capitalist, uh, high up in the capitalist system, as it were, in the 1930s, who, who genuinely did see Franklin Roosevelt, didn't they, as a threat to an old way of doing democracy in America. The, the Roosevelt as dictator thread runs right through his entire political career. It was very acute in the first couple of years of the of the New Deal. When we think of fascism, we might run to, to Hitler and, and, and want to talk about Nazism, but let's not overlook the Mussolini chapter. So Mussolini was the model that many Americans looked to, and they said, well, democracy is definitely not working the way 
We wanted to. Mussolini is doing something kind of interesting over there, and just as you're describing, consolidation of political power, figuring out how the gov- the levers of government can work in order to empower the people. Right. In the American gaze, Mussolini was kind of a a a, a, a very positive figure. Not only did he carry himself in this kind of masculine way and seem to have answers for everything, but he was much admired for the way in which he fused together labor, government, corporations and built what they perceived to be, perhaps wrongly, a functioning new kind of industrial uh, society that could answer the crisis of, of modernity, if you like. Will, there was a, an influential figure in, in this period, Lawrence Dennis, who's sometimes been called the intellectual godfather of American fascism. I'm not sure whether that's entirely fair, but he was the author of a, of a much-discussed book called The Coming American Fascism, in 1936. And I just looked up a review, a contemporary review in the Atlantic Monthly, which is a generally positive review in a, in a journal that has a kind of liberal uh, tradition, which says, in the coming American fascism, Mr. Dennis has posed a question which, other than in vague generalities, takes a lot of answering. Quite simply, his question is this, since we have rationalized all our important schemes of organization with the exception of government, why not make it unanimous? And the, the reviewer goes on in this broadly sympathetic way to say, look, what, what Lawrence Dennis is saying is fascism in the form that it is laid out, especially in Italy, although obviously by then Hitler had come to power in Germany, is almost inevitable. It's the logic of a complex modern society. Yeah. Whether we like it or not, it's inevitable. Just as Tocqueville in the 19th century said democracy is inevitable, now some kind of centralization, which we can call fascism, is inevitable. Well, what, of course, they were overlooking is the uh, ultimate evolution of fascism into a genocidal racialist project. And so fascism without racism is something else. We could call it corporatism. We can call it, uh, uh, you know, capitalism. <laughs> There's all sorts of, 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 of words that we can use to describe what, you know, advanced industrial societies were searching for in the Depression era, how to make government work again. Maybe it means consolidating more power. Maybe it means using government more wisely. It certainly meant building a bigger government. I mean, the United States government dramatically expanded in the 1930s to meet the economic crisis. None of that by itself is fascism. I think it's important that we talk about Dennis to mention something that may seem like just a, a remarkable like a quirk of history or anomaly or something, but I actually think it's really central to Dennis. Is Dennis was, in fact, an African-American who was passing as white. And what it's it, his biographer has said, and I agree with this, you know, in reading Dennis's writings, that, that Dennis saw very clearly that American democracy had only ever been what Hitler called a Herrenvoke democracy, a master race democracy. It was a democracy of white elite patriarchs. That was what it was in function, right? Whatever the whatever the Constitution said, functionally, that's what it had been and continued to be. And so Lawrence Dennis basically decided to throw in his lot with the winning side. Um, and he saw it as, the, he called it the wave of the future. So yes, it was inevitable, but it was also opportunistic. It was like, well, these guys are winning. So I'm mixed race and I'm just going to pass as white and that's what I'm going to do. Observing the political uh, transformation of the Western world through black eyes. Uh, you can just go through the Pittsburgh Courier and Baltimore Afro-American and all the black newspapers with, with a huge readership to watch how they describe the, uh, the European fascism. And their answer was, we've had this for a very long time in the American South. It's Jim Crow. They said that this is Jim Crow. They said it's the same thing. Editorial in the Pittsburgh Courier, 1933, Hitler learns from America, which elaborates that point. 
Hitler himself used that argument with uh, with American diplomats who said, well, we're just doing what right. you guys have right. been doing for a long time. We're just right. learning from you, uh, segregating the races. You you share these basic assumptions about uh, race and so forth. But it is it is one has to be careful to to to, to point out that Hitler his his entire political life and his political movement was organized around the principle of the destruction of what he viewed as the hostile you know a virus in German society, the Jews. And that's quite different from the conversations that Americans were having about how to make government work better, even on a kind of corporatist model. Sarah, I want to I want to ask you about Sinclair Lewis's 1935 novel, It Can't Happen Here. Sinclair Lewis's vision for what an American fascism would look like in It Can't Happen Here doesn't include the racial component, which in my view is what limits it in terms of its kind of prophetic qualities. But otherwise, it's pretty bang on. So as you say, Sinclair Lewis, he's not actually dealing with Jim Crow and the racial dimension. So what is he doing here? He's describing a populist, Buzz Windrip, who rides a a populist wave into the White House, promising people whatever it is, $5,000 a year of guaranteed income, and uh, immediately starts um, to imprison in concentration camps people who were opposed to him. And so what was that novel doing? What was that warning about then? If it wasn't the kind of the racial dynamic that you've just been describing... What was the source of Sinclair Lewis's fear about the collapse of American democracy that he described in that novel? Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, which was a, a huge bestseller in 1935, it's, uh, is worth pointing out. Mm. He was attacking uh, what he described as, it's a bit of a, of a pun that's easier to see on the page than it is um, when you say it, but what he described as a government of the profits, by the profits, for the profits, and that is to say financial profits. The American fascists that he imagines are called corporatists. What he envisions, what he saw very clearly, in fact, he saw this um, because uh, his wife, Dorothy Thompson, um, a very eminent journalist at the time, she was said to be the most famous woman in America after only Eleanor Roosevelt, um, had had been in Europe. She was a foreign correspondent and had been in Europe during the rise of European fascism, had interviewed Hitler. And she saw very clearly that what had enabled European fascism was that the right wing conservatives, corporate conservatives, who were not themselves fascist, had made common cause with fascists to defeat the liberal bourgeois elite, as they saw them, and to defeat anything that smacked of socialism. And so they would rather make common cause with fascists to defeat socialism and to protect private profit than they would be to recognize the risk of fascism and to let the left in. And Lewis, therefore, could see very clearly from the conversations that um, he had with Thompson and her circle about what was happening in Europe, that that was exactly the kind of thing that corporate capitalists in America would also be prepared to do. So that's really what um, Lewis is attacking. But he's also, and this is really important, he's also attacking the faux Christianity, in his view, of these groups and the ways in which they would use the cross and the way in which they would use rhetoric of Christianity without any Christian ethos as a kind of cloak for their their ulterior economic motives and, and their motives of brute power, of course. And so he has this vision of a dictator, as you say, he's called Buzz Windrip. People note that Windrip, and they noted at the time that he seemed to be modeled on Huey Long, who had just been assassinated uh, at the end of 1935, just as Lewis published his novel, 
but his name also very clearly suggests that hmm. of a Christian evangelical local fascist named Gerald Winrod, who was known as the Jayhawk Nazi. He was from Kansas and he ran for Repu the Republican nomination in 1938. And he was a Christo fascist. I mean, to put but not to find a point on it. He was the leader of one of these um, Christo-fascist groups that, that sprouted up in the early 1930s. And so the, the, although the Christian element of Lewis's satire is not as pronounced as the corporatist target, um, it's in there. I think you just have to, to see the, you have to be able to read the 1930s codes, as it were, and recognize the topical references. Yeah, that's so interesting, Sarah. And I think that's, to me, that's a very persuasive reading compared to the more obvious and familiar one, which is this is, is a satire on, as you mentioned, Huey Long, Louisiana governor and senator. At the same time, which you're not time supposed indeed. to do for listeners who aren't aware of that. <laughs> and who pretty much controlled Louisiana like a mob boss by the end, or like you know, the political machine controlled Louisiana. And he was anti-communist in the way that um, many American politicians obviously were anti-communist in this period. I don't think he was anti-Semitic, was he, Will? I mean, how do you classify Huey Long? He's such a, I mean, we could certainly probably should do an entire podcast on Huey Long, but in a sentence or two, how do you classify him? Well, the one thing we can say, I think, is that Huey Long was not a fascist in his lifetime. Had he lived a little longer, perhaps he might have built a movement that we might think of as recognizably fascist. But my view, my take on Long is that he didn't need fascism to be successful at what he was doing. He had almost total power in Louisiana uh, by, by uh, patronage and rigging elections when he needed to. He wanted to work within the framework of the Democratic Party. He already had a, a, a functioning political party in which he was quite powerful, the Democratic Party. He considered maybe positioning himself to challenge Roosevelt for a nomination, or at least make it so that Roosevelt himself could not be renominated. But Huey Long was an economic populist, and his roots lay in that tradition of uh, anti-elitist rhetoric and, and, and principles in which the very elites that put fascists in power in Europe, uh, those are the bad guys in Huey Long's worldview. Those are the bad, guys. Are the bad guys. So, yeah. he, so he does not, you know, he doesn't have that same playbook by which he says, "I'm going to go to the corporate boardrooms, quietly tell them, back me, and it's going to be fine. I'll get you what you want." Right. On the contrary, he's an economic populist who's interested in wealth redistribution, and he has a lot of schemes to do it, which are mostly pretty zany. But it works for him politically in Louisiana for a, a period of time in the midst of the depression. And I think that uh, point about not going into the corporate boardrooms is probably what separates him from the fictional Buzz Windrip. Yeah. He was called a fascist at the time, frequently, and people were very worried. I agree with Will. That they're, they're, you can't call what he did fascism by any reasonable reckoning, uh, you know, up until the point of his assassination. But one of the key reasons why I think you, another key reason why I think you can't do that, along with the fact that he wasn't making common cause with corporates, is that he also did not try to root out an enemy within. He did not have you might think he was because he was a Southern white man and he was certainly racist in his own life and in his own you know, practices. I mean, he made terrible comments about lynching not being a big deal. And, you know, he made the terrible things. But his policies were not about rooting out the racialized enemy. They were not about getting rid of either black people or Jews. And in fact, his policy of economic redistribution was so central to what he was doing that if that if a rising tide lifted all boats, he was prepared for it to lift black people, too, because that was what he thought was the most important thing. And that, to me, is a really key right. point in saying that whatever he was, it was sort of sui generis, It was, but it was not anything that we could recognize as as what we the ways in which we now can taxonomize fascism. 
Right. Long's populism was a kind of anti was an anti-communist alternative that would address the problems of poverty yeah. and inequality and and, and unemployment, uh, albeit in ways that might have involved a bit of uh, financial f- fantasy. But uh, Will, I want to talk about Father Coughlin uh, next because because he's the other figure who often comes up in this kind of conversation. T- tell us who Father Coughlin was and 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 does he meet the criteria for American fascism? Well. I'm in school that we pronounce it Coglin with a hard Coglin. G. Coglin. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's that's my error. Father Coglin. News to me right. too. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. He was a famous Catholic priest uh, who emerged in the uh, 1920s. Uh, he had a church in the suburbs of Detroit, and he got the idea that it might be rather interesting to record and even broadcast some of his uh, his weekly sermons. And for a good portion of the 19 20s into the early 1930s, most of his sermons would have fit just about anywhere in any Catholic church in America on a Sunday. He wasn't particularly political. Um, But as the uh, Depression took root, he began to feel that he had a, a sort of a mission. Why had the Depression happened? Why were people hungry? Why were they jobless? Why were they suffering so much? What of democracy as well as what of capitalism? Oh, capitalism shall never again flourish as once it did. Capitalism has been almost taxed out of existence. And though he really didn't know a great deal about economics as such, he was an autodidact, he tried to bone up on it, he got advice from some rather marginal figures about uh, what was wrong with the economy. He came up with a, a, a simplistic way of saying basically the economy is is flawed by design, and it's been designed by economic royalists to screw you. And you being the hardworking white parishioners of suburban Detroit, but actually the Midwest, and increasingly an audience that reached all the way across the country. Somebody must be blamed, of course. But those in power always forget to blame themselves. They always forget to read the Constitution of the United States of America that says Congress has the power to issue and to regulate the value of money. He was, in a sense, using some of the same economic populist language that Huey Long had been tr- testing out and trying, but he, he, he aimed it directly at a kind of conspiracy inside economic institutions of America. And... He was a champion of Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. He, he, he supported Roosevelt. He was friends with Roosevelt. They had a correspondence together. They, he visited him. And in the first couple of years, he was enthusiastic about the direction the New Deal was going because, after all, Franklin Roosevelt had been talking about the economic royalists. But he quickly began to realize that his audience didn't really want to hear solutions. They wanted to hear uh, the, the, the accusations. So... He sustained an audience by feeding them a conspiracy theory about American economic royalists hurting the little guy. But was he a fascist? That comes to your real question. And I think, you know, again, the answer is he never fulfilled the fascist playbook. I'm not saying that he didn't try. (laughs) He did try. But he turned out to be kind of bad at it, because one thing that fascists need is a mass political party. And Father Coughlin didn't know how to build a mass political party. He wasn't that interested in it. He thought of himself as a visionary. If you like, he's kind of a Goebbels, but he never found his Hitler. So he was a propagandist, but he was not a party builder. And the result was in 1936, he tried to build a political party called the Union Party. It failed terribly. 1938, 1939, he begins to toy with the idea of building a kind of fascist militia. And that doesn't go very well because by then his brand is tarnished as vehemently anti-Semitic. So 
He's a fascinating character who, who, who is a very important figure for anybody thinking about the 1930s to reckon with. Does he signal the availability of certain fascist ideas in American culture? Absolutely. But he was a failure. And I think it's important to understand his failures as much as his success in showing the, the limits in American culture and American politics to, the, to a kind of fascist demagogue of the Coughlin type. As the, these different um, right-wing groups in the in the 1930s we've been talking about, some of them were, were uh, self-styled American fascist groups, but there was also a group that was specifically, it began as the Friends of the Hitler Movement in America. It was the Friends of the Third Reich and eventually renamed itself the German-American Bund um, in order to kind of... Uh, give itself the approximation of distancing itself from Hitler um, as Hitler became you know, more problematic um, throughout the 1930s. And the um, German-American Bund was an explicitly pro-Nazi party. They had several very large rallies in Madison Square Garden, the most famous of which happened in February, February 20th, 1939, when about 20,000 Americans gathered where there were stormtroopers standing in the aisles in Nazi uniform, and there were on the stage, there was a giant flag of George Washington hanging directly next to a giant swastika. And there were American flags juxtaposed with swastikas. And uh, it was a political rally for them to curry favor and to get publicity and to um, celebrate their power. And um, it was filmed. It's really shocking to watch. It has been recently remastered and um, and edited, and um, it's called A Night at the Garden. And I, it's available online. I commend it to all listeners who, who aren't aware of this because it's really shocking to see and, and you start to understand the kinds of, of power that certain fascist and, and uh, in this case, Nazi movements in the U.S. in the interwar period were uh, were starting to accrue. This was one of the instances where American Nazis were referring to Roosevelt as Rosenfeld and saying that it was uh, that um, that the the uh, Roosevelt's government was being run by a cabal of Jewish international bankers. That he was in thrall to the Rothschilds. Very much the equivalent of people saying that uh, a progressive government, American government today, is is in the hands of Soros. It's exactly the same same trope being played out again. And in, in this case, what happened was that um, a young Jewish waiter, very bravely actually, threw himself onto the stage to protest the virulent anti-Semitism of the speeches that were being made. And the American stormtroopers leapt on him. He was attacked. He was kicked. He was beaten. He was actually rescued by the New York police force who were on hand to stop violence. And they kind of carted him out. And there were a, a number of uh, prominent journalists there as well, including Dorothy Thompson, uh, who was the most famous voice of anti-fascism in America at the time. And she wrote about it in her incredibly popular syndicated column. So people were very aware that it was happening. And it was a kind of culminating moment of grave concern to people who could see that the movement to support Hitler for various reasons was was really gathering pace. The February 1939 rally, ghastly though it is and shocking though it is to watch, um, in a sense marks the high, high watermark for the Bund. I mean, they were already under siege. They were already being investigated by the FBI. Um, the Bund had had more success in the early part of the decade, building out itself as a kind of 
uh, social cultural organization designed to introduce the children of German immigrant families to both German language and the Nazi party and the swastika, as well as the idea of a, of a multi-ethnic America. You could be a good American and a good Nazi at the same time. That was their, that was their theory. They ran summer camps. They had newspapers. They had civic organizations. In this sense, they mapped onto a model of multi-ethnic America in which you could maintain your old loyalties while also being a good American. And in doing so, that was not as controversial as as um, in the in the mid thirties, as was their political behavior and their open alignment with uh, with Hitler and with his anti-Semitic doctrine by 1939. And that's when they began to be scorned. So I think it's we must be careful not to overestimate, overstate the importance of the Bund. There was a limit to what Americans were willing to tolerate in their political culture with respect to anti-Semitism and pro-fascism. And by 1939, you begin to see the mobilization of the forces that will finally support uh, the Second World War effort uh, and and the confrontation with fascism. Another movement, Sarah, that was in the end a failure, but which might not have been in some alternative universe, was the America First movement. And that phrase, of course, America first, is one that listeners will obviously be familiar with from contemporary American politics. And that, I guess, was part of the reason which inspired you to write a book about the history of that term. So so let's so take us into the America first movement of the of the late. 30s. Yeah, absolutely. The the resurgence of the phrase is indeed what inspired me to write a book about it. Um, because when it was repurposed by Donald Trump in his first campaign, it, it came out of the blue and it took a lot of people by surprise. And they began trying to um, explain it in terms of the America First movement of the early 1940s, which was the isolationist movement, which was eventually led by Charles Lindbergh. Um, which sought to keep America out of the war. And Lindbergh was a was a celebrity. Yeah. I mean, he was a famous aviator. He was a handsome guy. Absolutely. If you if you had Charles Lindbergh was going to speak at a rally, there would be people come, if nothing else, out of curiosity. Yeah. He had a magnetism. Not about not it. just a celebrity, but a hero. Right. He was the hero who had been the first man to fly transatlantic flight. He'd made America, you know, great again, you know, all that kind of thing. So he has all of these associations with American greatness. And yes, and he's he's blonde haired and blue eyed and and, uh, you know, and 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 then he had this terrible tragedy in the early 1930s where his son was kidnapped and murdered appalling, you know, catastrophe for him. And he that, that created such a um, media circus that he and his wife fled to Europe. And eventually they found themselves in uh, taking invited to take trips to Nazi Germany, where Hitler wanted Lindbergh to to view his air force and his munitions build up. History has shown that Hitler was manipulating Lindbergh, who may have been a hero and he may have been blonde and he may have had charisma, but he was also dumb as the post. And he um, he fell for Hitler's uh, basically Hitler, you know, wanted to give the impression of having a much greater um, air force, a much greater military buildup than he had. But anyway, Lindbergh came home convinced that Hitler was uh, undefeatable and that America should make common cause with Hitler. His reasons for that was he was anti-Semitic to the core. He was a virulent anti-Semite. And he ascribed to the kind of eugenicist nativism that said that the, what they called the Nordic white races, which is functionally exactly the same thing as what Hitler was calling the Aryan races, that the Nordic white races were biologically superior to the races of Southern 
Europe, of Eastern Europe, to Jews, of course, to Black people, of course, to Asians, who they would refer to as Orientals. And his view was that the white races need to band together to defeat those races. And it didn't much matter which white race was in charge. So if it was Hitler or, or you know, Hitler's uh, fascism or Britain's democracy or America's democracy, he didn't really care as long as white people were running things. And this, again, may sound like I am, you know, putting an unfair gloss on it. But if you read his speeches um, and, and read his diaries, you'll see that, that he was very explicit about this. And eventually, because of that position that he was taking, the America First group, which became the America First Committee, which had already formed, asked him to come along and become their spokesman. In fact, the slogan America First, it's just worth letting readers know this, um, goes back all the way to the 1850s is where I found the earliest uses of it in an American political context. And it was being used by the so-called Know Nothing Party, who were the original American nativists. They were uh, this is where the word nativism comes from, the party that said that uh, they were anti-immigrant, um, but they were anti-German and Irish immigrants in the 1840s and 1850s. And they believed that they were standing for the native-born uh, white Protestant American, i.e. the older immigrant communities, but who they saw as the real Americans as opposed to the more recent immigrant communities. And they began using the phrase America first in the 1850s to describe um, their policies. And then those that phrase kind of traveled through American politics in local ways until it was popularized around the First World War, actually, by Woodrow Wilson in a speech in 1915. Then it became incredibly popular through the 1920s. Harding ran on an America First platform. Um, it was associated with the Klan in the early decades of the 1920s. It was absolutely it, it was even more ubiquitous in the press of the 1920s than it was in the press of the 2020s. The reason I mentioned that that history in order to talk about the America First movement of the 1940s is that adults in the 1940s grew up with this phrase in the 1920s and they knew exactly what it meant. It was a dog whistle of a kind that we would recognize. It was invoking nativist, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, Protestant evangelical definitions of uh, an ethno-nationalist vision of America. And that was consistent with what became an isolationist platform. Partly, there were those who uh, who were isolationist for the reasons that Lindbergh was, because they thought that as long as white people were in charge, that was good enough. But by the time the America First Committee had it came to its fullest power in 1940-1941, it was a massive coalition of people who were opposed to the war for all number of reasons. And by no means were all sympathetic with Germans. And it's important to recognize that. But some of them were. Some of them were straight up appeasers, the way that Lindbergh was. Um, some of them were pacifists. Some of them were socialists. Some of them were uh, uh, they were students who, you know, were against the war. There were all kinds of reasons why people came together to say that they didn't think that the United States should enter the war. And they come, came in under this umbrella movement of America First. But what the America First Committee did at that time was it legitimized that far right wing reactionary version of isolationism at the same time under the rubric of America First. So, Will, you're working on this subject at the moment of American entry into the Second World War. Can you Try to distill for us um, the role of sympathy for fascism or kind of fascism adjacent 
politics or however we want to kind of position it. How, I mean, as Sarah's just said there, there are a whole load of reasons why people in the United States would be against the United States re-entering the, the, the turmoil of world war. And, and Father Coughlin, as I shall now learn to call him, um, was certainly one of those who warned against the dangers of, of being embroiled again in another world war. But was sympathy for fascism, in other words, some kind of basic view that the potential enemies of the United States in the 1940s were not the people who America should be fighting, that they weren't as fundamentally challenging to American values as all that? I mean, mm-hmm. how important was that strain? Well, I think it was very important. I subscribe to everything that Sarah said in her characterization of the late America First Committee and the way in which it had woven in anti-Semitism into its basic core. But I also I also just want to go back for a moment to the other side of, of the story that she uh, uh, alluded to, which is that there were many other reasons why people would be anti-war, why they would be pro-appeasement and why they would not get, want to get involved in, right. in a war in Europe, no matter what the cause. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, progressive, enlightened opinion uh, was anti-war. I mean, college professors were anti-war. They were in favor of trying to resolve disputes between nations through international law. Uh, The League of Nations had failed in the Senate, but it remained popular um, in in the country, the idea of working with other nations to avoid conflict, to avoid war, to avoid the huge expense of building up standing armies, um, which then the the lessons of the First World War had proven that if you have a gigantic army and a gigantic navy, you're going to use them. So let's not have any of those navies and armies, and maybe we won't have war. Who could argue really with that? And so there's a great deal of very thoughtful uh, people who are earnest in their desire to build a better world by avoiding resort to war. Now, it's true that this ideology, in a sense, blinded many Americans to the fact that there are there are things worse than war. Uh, the fact is sometimes you have to use war in order to suppress vast genocides and you have to do the, to take take terrible risks and to make terrible choices. But that is to fast forward too quickly. And I think what's so interesting is that Franklin Roosevelt himself, until probably 1938, maybe 1939, very much shared that enlightened outlook of a world that that could be um, improved through international cooperation and resort to conflict resolution. He was not hiding this interventionist fire. He wanted that he wanted to jump in and fight the fascists, but he just couldn't do it because Charles Lindbergh and the America First Committee had poisoned public opinion. On the contrary, Roosevelt believed there was a way that America could avoid get, going to war up until a very, very late in the day. War was meant, mm. meant failure. And what's one thing Roosevelt didn't like is failure. So he pursued up until the very end the idea that America could be a referee. It could guide Europe away from the path of war toward the path of, um, of peace. And that that is revealing about Roosevelt's outlook in which Roosevelt was an American exceptionalist. He believed America was different from all other countries, had a gift uh, that it could bestow upon the old world and help it avoid the catastrophes that seemed to be inherent in the European nature. And so in that sense, he was also an America first kind of person. He believed America was distinct, that its own lessons had something of value to teach the world. And for the first eight years of his presidency, that's more or less all he talked about. Mm. So he's a fascinating uh, you know, evolu- evolution that has to happen before Roosevelt becomes the war leader of World War II, he's very much a pacifist and anti-war leader in the first, say, eight years uh, of his of his long time in office. 
It could be said that most American politicians uh, believe in American exceptionalism in much the way you describe, but I, I certainly agree that, that, that Franklin Roosevelt was particularly brilliant at articulating the reasons why uh, the United States would be likely to be able to survive the turmoil of the, the interwar period because of its special characteristics. And of course, the United States uh, in December 1941 did, of course, enter the Second World War. And that changed profoundly the conversation about fascism and about Hitler and Mussolini. And to what extent did it change the conversation about Jewish people and Father Coughlin's concerns about the economic royalists who were screwing the little guy? How did Will, how did the experience of war change this whole conversation about the relationship between Americanism on the one hand and fascism on the other? Well, rather than seeing it as a as a rupture, I think that what it allows Roosevelt to do is carry through this narrative of American exceptionalism into the war. Now, now that we are engaged in war, we have a distinctive capacity to wage war on behalf of democracy. We're going to do that. We're then going to take this this uh, this gospel out into the world, and we're going to we're going to re- you know, teach the world how to build democracy for themselves. So there's a striking continuity between his rhetoric that he used in the late 30s that now he would adapt to to, the, to war fighting. Why do we fight? Uh, it's not to save the Jews. Nobody talked about saving the Jews in 1942 or 1943 or 1944. They started talking about that in the 1960s. That's when people started re-engineering the Second World War as a cause to stop Hitler. That was not uh, the principal motive of America uh, during the Second World War as Roosevelt articulated it. It was to halt the militarism and the beastliness of fascist governments, not necessarily the people who he still described as, as redeemable, but it was, to, it was to, to rid the world of fascism because fascism would, was not only bad for the people who lived under it, but American democracy could not survive and thrive in a world yes. uh, dominated by fascism. They were yes. incompatible. And so he fulfills the potential of this American exceptionalism by saying, yes. it's not just that we want to build a democracy in the United States and we can afford to ignore the rest of the world. It's that we cannot survive and be prosperous and be peaceful yes. as long as fascism dominates either Asia or Europe. Now, that is a very big uh, to-do list. And of course, the yeah. United States fulfills that objective, at least in the short term. That, as it was, the Rubicon that Roosevelt crossed was not the recognition that fascism and American democracy, as he understood it, were incompatible, but that they it was impossible for fascism to exist elsewhere in the world for American democracy to survive. What should Americans or others in 2024 draw from this conversation that we've been having about both the sympathy for fascism in 1930s and 40s America and the limits of support for fascism. We're in a moment now where the word fascism is being readily used uh, again to describe important political movements in the United States. It's not difficult to find liberal journalists who call Donald Trump a fascist, who see him and the MAGA forces using old European fascist playbooks, the big lie about the stolen election uh, in 2020, uh, the use of polarization, even perhaps the kind of the militarization of their movement and the Proud Boys and so on. And you, you, you two know this uh, better, better, better than I do. I mean, as as historians who've worked on the history of fascism and of 
American relationships to these kinds of right-wing authoritarian movements, whether we use that term or not. How do you read the present? Well, I'm very worried about the present. And I think that the fact that there have historically been limits on what Americans will tolerate. Well, Americans are not a static group of people. We are not the same as we were in 1939. We are not coming out of a Rooseveltian type consensus period. We are coming out of a period of deep, deep divisiveness. And we have a totally different media ecosystem. So so the, the differences to, to uh, in our in our moment are are you know, vast and, and incredibly important to understanding the fact that that just because we're not saying that history is exactly repeating itself, well, that means that that we can't just count on the same limits just kind of reflexively kicking in as if Americans are inoculated from fascism. That's the whole point of it can't happen here. Of course it can. Fascism can happen anywhere. It's the politics of ultranationalism and it's the politics of grievance. And it's an ethno-nationalist version of that ultranationalism. It can happen anywhere. And in any country, it will it will form itself around a nucleus of patriotic uh, and mythical ideas that are specific to that political culture. So America has always had its version as as I'm not a I'm not a global historian. I can't say that all nations have had fascist movements. I do believe they all have the capacity for them. But certainly the vast majority of Western European and American countries have had them. And uh, the United States is is one of them. In my view, Trump is absolutely in a clear lineage um, with those movements, but he is leveraging a different set of political realities. Uh, what I often come to when people ask me this question is um, a description by the historian Robert Paxton, who's, who's recognized as, a, as an author, you know, international authority on interwar fascism. And in 2004, so long before Trump, um, he described fascism, interwar fascism in a way that has become a kind of standard description. And I think it's really helpful uh, in terms of thinking about what we're seeing in the United States today. It's, it's just one sentence, but describing what classical we might call fascism looked like. He said it was marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation or victimhood, and by compensatory cults of unity, energy and purity in which a mass based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites, abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraints, goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. Now, apart from the question of external expansion, which we could debate another time, that to me is a is a empirically accurate description of Donald Trump um, and his supporters. And we need only think about his recent speech, um, uh, you know, describing uh, um, Americans as vermin um, to recognize that he is. There are reasons why people said that was fascist, because it is absolutely classically fascist rhetoric. And it was and it is. And it disturbs me greatly that there are people outside of that cult, and I will call it a cult, um, outside of that cult who still want to deny it because it's too discomforting. It is discomforting, but it's reality. We're looking at it. And in my view, we have to fight it very hard. Is that all true, Will? What do you think? Uh, I would just uh, introduce not a dissent, but just maybe even a, a slight glimmer of hope. Please do. Yeah. I'd <laughs> love it if you did that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Let me just say the picture is very dark. But I think uh, to use a historical reference point, I think I think we're more in 1932 than 1936 or 1938. By that I mean we're on the cusp of what could become a fascist experiment in the United States. Donald Trump, I think, absolutely has it within him um, to uh, to seek all the all of the benefits that a fascist 
uh, state would give him in terms of his own cult of personality and his own power. I don't have any doubt that we could go through the checklist of what what is fascism and find all of those characteristics in Trump and in portions, a large portion of the Republican Party. But one thing we should remember is that Donald Trump already had four years in office. And though it was a very near run thing, he was actually voted out of office and was compelled to give up the levers of power. Now, that doesn't mean that our democracy was unscathed. On the contrary, it has been badly warped. But we have not yet had what the we saw in Germany between 1933 and 1936, the consolidation of power around a single party, a single leader in which all the institutions of civil society were brought into the party and were eliminated essentially as independent uh, entities. Uh, the politicization of every single level of the bureaucracy, the transformation of the political party, the Nazi party, into the state. We didn't experience that in the first four Trump years. Now, my view is that if we have another Trump four years, we might see that. And that's why I say we're in 1932. We have We have passed through a period in which we know who we're dealing with. We know exactly what his intentions are. But he hasn't yet had the opportunity to implement them fully. The next, should he be returned to power in 19, uh, in, in 2025, he, he would have the opportunity. And I think we would then find out just how many guardrails there really are in American democracy. I was speaking to Will Hitchcock and Sarah Churchwell. There's always been a strain in American political culture that's admired the strong man, yearned for simple solutions. And today, surveys show that large minorities of Americans say they want a leader willing to break rules in order to fix problems. As a label, fascism can sometimes obscure more than it illuminates, yet it may well be that liberal democratic institutions are more vulnerable to collapse from illiberal authoritarianism today than at any time since the 1930s, when fascism, along with communism, offered seemingly alluring alternatives. The great challenge of 2024, which the US did not face in the 1930s or 40s, is a level of partisan polarisation that creates two alternative fact worlds without even a shared external enemy. But it should be a surprise to no one that the anxieties you hear now about the potential collapse of American democracy and the fears of internal subversion are nothing new. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope from Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. We're very grateful to all our donors who make possible everything we do, including this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, however small, please go to rai.ox.ac.uk and follow the links or drop us an email. Our producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.